Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of a very influential and successful man who had a very driven personality. And uh, one day this very driven type A type personality goes to the cardiologist and he hears there from his, his doctor that he has a very serious heart condition. Well, being the type of person that he is, this guy decides that He's going to fix his heart condition through rigorous exercise. But his heart disease, this this, this heart just ridden with disease, couldn't handle that regimen of, of rigorous exercise. But unfortunately, it led to his untimely death. You see, he couldn't transform his own heart through exercise. He needed a heart transplant. And then he could begin the exercise of caring for his heart. I think this is what the early verses of Romans chapter 8 illustrates for us so well. Romans 8 reminds us that the normal Christian life is walked on the far side of a miraculous heart transplant. You understand what I'm saying? That the normal Christian life is walked on the far side of a miraculous heart transplant. You know, we've we've been talking here in the book of Romans. We we just came through Romans chapter 7. And I I really was at great pains to uh, explain to you that what Paul is describing here, especially at the end of Romans chapter 7, is he's struggling with indwelling (laughs) sin and crying out to God, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I took great pains to explain to you that this is the normal Christian life, right? That even though we've come to Christ, we still struggle with indwelling sin, just like the Apostle Paul. It's the normal Christian life. But even though that's part of the normal Christian life, we, we should never read Romans chapter 7 in isolation. We should always press on into Romans chapter 8 where we also see here that the normal Christian life is walked according to the power of the Spirit. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit nearly enough. But He is all throughout this beloved chapter of Romans. I mean, the Holy Spirit is mentioned some 19 times here, just in this chapter. And I think these verses are intended to encourage us and intended to empower us. Intended to empower you and intended to make you connect the dots between your new life here in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually live it. We're not intended to stay in that frustrated place of Romans chapter 7. We are, are called to live and walk according to the Spirit, according to His power. Now, I'm not calling...
calling this the normal Christian life because it's boring or unremarkable. No, I call it the, the normal Christian life because it's something that should characterize every Christian's life. This is the normal Christian life. I think sometimes walking by the Spirit is painted as somehow the higher life. Right? That, that only some attain to. But no, this what is described here is the normal Christian life. Now, we're only going to make it through the first four verses here of Romans chapter 8. I really wanted to get to all the way through verse 13 this morning, and I guess there's too much good stuff in here, so I only made it to verse 4. And we're going to have to pick up here with this uh, this idea again next week. And I really only have one main point for you this morning. And I've kind of already said it. Here, I'm going to say it in another way here. The foundation of your transformation is no condemnation. That's the foundation of your Transformation. I could have put in the word there, sanctification. Right? If you want to be changed, the foundation of, of that transformation, that sanctification into holiness, there's a foundation there, and it is no condemnation. And we need to be careful not to flip that the other way around, which some systems of theology, some churches do. Another way to say this is what I've already said. That this new life is lived on the far side of a miraculous heart transplant. So let's just step through the text here. First, three, first four verses of what we're going to get to this morning. First, we talked about this at length last week. Verse 1, Paul makes a, a glorious proclamation. Romans 8, 1 stands like a banner over those who are in Christ by faith. And we closed last week by, by being challenged to know this truth. You can't be impacted by it if you don't know it. I challenge you to memorize this truth so that it's tucked away in your heart and be pulled out at any moment. We, challenged, we were challenged to not only know it and memorize it, but to pray that we might believe it. It's one thing to know this in your head. It's another thing to know it in your heart when you suffer or when you stumble and fall. That there is no condemnation for you, even though you've stumbled and fallen again. Or when suffering sets in and you get that diagnosis and it feels like God is against you. Or you get turned down for that, that promotion at work again and you wonder, God, why is my life working out this way? Pray that you might believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? We might believe it then, that we might share it and even sing about it. It's a truth that must be sung. In fact, I think it's understanding verses like Romans 8 1 that really causes a Christian to sing. It really sets your heart alive with, with praises to the Lord. And I just love how this verse comes right on the heels of Paul's cry, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? 
He's applying the truth of justification, your justification. Not just at the start of your journey, at the start when you first come to Christ and you get saved. We, we need to hear no condemnation on that day, but we need to continue to hear it throughout our Christian lives. And that's how, where Paul is applying it here in, in Romans 8.1. He's applying it to the Christian who is struggling with indwelling sin. And it's a glorious truth. Now Paul's going to go on here in verse 2 to give us the reason why there is no condemnation. It's going to give us here the reason why. And we need to ask ourselves the, the question here is, is transformation the cause or the evidence of no condemnation? In order to, or in order to really understand this verse, we have to talk a little bit about the nitty-gritty of a couple of, of words here. So I need you to, to hold on as we talk a little, a little technically about some of these words so we get some good understanding of exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 2 because I think it unlocks a lot of the rest of the passage. First, we need to talk about this word law. Paul uses this word two times in verse 2. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What do you mean, Paul, by talking about the law so much? Well, I think you need to understand here that Paul is, I think, playing with this word. He's using it figuratively. There is a, a literal meaning to the word law. It can mean a literal law code like the Ten Commandments. Right? And that's probably the normal usage of the word. But in general, this word it has a figurative meaning that can mean a principle or an authority or a power. And I think that's how Paul is using this word from time to time in the book of Romans. For example, if I take you back up to Romans chapter 7 for just a few moments, we didn't really take the time to, to really uh, you know, discuss this as we were going through these verses. But if you go back up to Romans 7, beginning in verse 21, Paul's going to say this. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close to hand. Now, you can see almost immediately there when you read that that Paul's not talking about the Ten Commandments there. He's talking about something else. I find it to be a law or a principle or a power. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now look, he's going to use the word law again in verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God. And I think there Paul is, by saying law of God, he is referring to the commandments of God, the specific commandments of God. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law. Right? So he's distinguishing, he's using this word law, and he's distinguishing it from the law of God. He's saying there's another law waging war against the law of my mind. Now, I think the law of my mind is another way of referring to the law of God. Because down in verse... 25, Paul says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. So I think when he says the law of my mind, it's kind of a shorthand for that, the law of God that uh, I serve with my mind. 
and making me a captive to the law of sin. There it is. There's another use of the word law. The law of sin. I don't think that's referring to the Ten Commandments. It's referring to the power of sin. Right? So Paul sees this, this power at work in his life. That when he wants to serve the law of God, the commands of God, there is this other power, the power of sin in his life. That exists in his flesh and there's this ongoing struggle with indwelling sin. Well, when we bring that kind of interpretation, the way Paul's been using that, down to chapter 8 and verse 2, we see here that Paul now applies this word law to the Holy Spirit. He, call, he calls it, he says, for the, the law of the Spirit of life. Is Paul talking about the Ten Commandments there? Is he saying that the, the Ten Commandments have come in and set you free from, from the law of sin and death? No, that's not what he's talking about there. He's using this word here metaphorically to mean that the power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. That's what he's talking about here. There is power in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone has the power to overcome the power of sin and of death. And, and Paul is, is contrasting these two powers here. So we talked about the word law, but the other nitty-gritty thing we need to talk about here is this little word for at the beginning of the verse. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Now that little word for can mean a couple of different things depending on the context. Just like in Greek, just like in English, that little word for can it be indicating the, the grounds for something. It can be indicating uh, the cause of it. Or you can use that little word for to sort of give the evidence for something. So for example, you might say, I went to the grocery store today for, because we were running out of food. Right? So in that instance, you're using that word to say, because my, my shelves were empty, my fridge was empty, it, it was, that's what caused me to get in my car, drive down the road, and, and go to shop right at Walmart or wherever you shop. Get some groceries. Or you could, you could use that same word for to say something like this. I went to the grocery store today for, as you can plainly see, my fridge is full. Right? It, the, the, the first usage gives you the, the grounds or the cause. The second usage is saying, hey, look at the evidence here. Same exact word, completely different emphasis, different meaning. And depending on how you understand that one little word, it can take you off in completely divergent different directions. Is Paul saying here in Romans 8, 2 that there is no condemnation because the spirit of life has transformed you into a holy person who defeats sin? This, is transformation the cause of the, of the declaration, no condemnation? 
Or is Paul saying here that there is therefore now no condemnation for, as you can plainly see, God has poured out the spirit of life, the power of the spirit of life into your hearts. And even now, he is overcoming the power of sin and death in your life. You might be able to tell by the way I'm sharing it with you which one I believe. The second one, right? Paul's giving here the power of the Spirit in your life as evidence, not as the grounds for your salvation. The, the Spirit in your life, the power of the Spirit in your life is evidence that God has declared over you there is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. One of these is good news and one is not. Thank God that we, it's not up to us to clean ourselves up and make ourselves transformed even if by the power of the Spirit to some level of standard of holiness before God declares over us, that one over there, no condemnation because of how holy they are. No, God pours His Spirit into us and by the power of the Spirit we are set free. We are set free. And then as we have that heart transplant in our lives, we are then finally able to do the exercises that strengthen our heart. But we don't exercise our, our sin-filled, diseased heart and somehow transform that heart into something shiny and new. No, we don't do that. presence of transformation and power over sin in your life is evidence, not the grounds of your salvation. And Paul is going to echo the same exact idea in verses 3 and 4. Here's we finish out these few verses. So we have the proclamation of no condemnation, verse 1, and the evidence of transformation by the power of the Spirit, verse 2. Another way to say it is verse 1, we have Justification, verse 2, sanctification or transformation by the Spirit. You know, my past five years here as, as pastor of this church, I've known several of you who have undergone various joint replacements. And I know several of you who are working up the courage to get a, a joint replaced. Right? It's not an easy decision to make, as I understand. And I've seen many of you, as you sort of lose the, the mobility in one of your major joints, kind of struggle with the impossibility of doing what maybe at another point in your life was quite simple. Right? When, when one of your major joints freezes up and, and begins to go, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you might want to bound up a flight of steps. It doesn't matter if you have an angry dog chasing you from behind. You're only going to be able to move so fast, right? <laughs> you might want to flat those steps like you're 18, but you can't. 
But then suddenly I've also seen just the amazing thing that happens when someone gets that joint replaced and suddenly they have a new freedom to move that they maybe haven't experienced in years. Right? And it becomes self-evident to you and to those around you that, that you are living on the far side of a life-transforming surgery. Right? You were slowing down, but now suddenly you're moving again. I think the same thing is true of the Christian life. I don't mean that the, the struggle of Romans 7 is, is erased. It, it, it isn't. But I do mean that your life will be marked and changed by the new power of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within you. He will. This is not the description of some higher Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. If you are in Christ, then you have the spirit of power. The spirit of life has set you free. And that spirit will do his work in your life. Hit me like a ton of bricks this week that all of what Paul is saying here in, in Romans 8, 1 through 11 is, is descriptive. It's not prescriptive or prescriptive. How do you say that? He, he's not yet saying, hey, you ought to do this or you must do this or that. He is simply describing the Christian life. And he is saying that for those who are in Christ Jesus, both the power of the Spirit of life has already set you free. The power of the Spirit is within you. There are new affections, new abilities to love God and keep His commandments that weren't there before. And don't tell me that if you are in Christ, but there's been no freedom to obey God and, and no impact upon your, your desires or your way of life. Don't tell me that you're in Christ if there's no if there's absolutely no change. Walking by the Spirit isn't some higher Christian life that a carnal Christian is called to. Walking according to the Spirit is the sign that you are a Christian at all. Because this is the normal Christian life. Now, as I said, I, I believe Paul repeats this logic in the next two verses as he returns us again to the foundation and the result here of our justification. And we see that the foundation of our sanctification is the work of God through Christ. Paul, once again, in verse 3 here, says, For... This time he's not giving the evidence, he's giving the grounds. You could really replace this with because. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Remember, it's not the law's fault, it's sin's fault. It's the fault of our sinful flesh that we sin. It's not God's perfect law's fault. We, we saw in Romans chapter 7 verse 12 that God's commandments are holy and set apart. Not only are they holy and set apart, but they are righteous, they are correct, they are true. 
Not only are they holy and set apart, and not only are they right and true, but they are good. It's not God's law's fault. It is the fault of our sinful flesh. And, and what is it that this holy, righteous, and good law could not do in your life? That God had to step in and do? The law could not save you. The law only has the ability to condemn you. It is not able to save the ungodly. God had to do what the law was powerless to do. And that is bring this banner over you of no condemnation, justification. And how did God do this? The, the text goes on to say that He did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Every word of that phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh, is important. If Paul had said that God had sent His Son in sinful flesh, you could have gotten the impression that Christ was a sinner and He's not. If Paul had said that God had sent His Son in the likeness of flesh, it, it could have led you to believe that He wasn't really human. That He just appeared to be human. No, every word here is important. Christ was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh taking on human flesh in every way like unto our own, and yet without sin. This is extremely important here because Christ was sent by the Father into the world, which, by the way, points to the fact that Christ pre-existed. Christ is eternal. He wasn't created. He it was pre-existent, sent by the Father into the world for the purpose of of being a sin offering for us. He was sent, as Paul says here, for sin. Amen. That's a, a normal way in, in the Old Testament Greek to refer to a sin offering. Christ was sent for sin. And in Him, God condemned sin in the flesh. Douglas Moose said that Paul represents here the interchange of the gospel. Christ becomes what we are so that we might become what Christ is. In order that, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement, singular, not righteous requirements, but the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. It's a passive way to say that. Because God is the one fulfilling that righteous requirement in us. Not by us, but in us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Like the way Christopher Ash put it, he said, Why did God condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus? Why the cross and why the gift of the Spirit to apply the benefits of the cross to the believer? Answer. In order that something might happen that could not happen through the law, the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us. So what does this mean? 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's two ways you can take this. First, you can take it that Jesus fulfills the law for us, pointing back to our justification. And in this way, the righteous requirement of the law equals absolute perfection. Right? What is the demand of the law of God? It's a standard of perfection and holiness. And if you don't attain that righteous requirement of the law, what else is there except death and condemnation? That's what the law promises. That's the requirement of the law. If you are a sinner, you are condemned before a holy God. And in this sense, God did for us what we could never do ourselves by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life, actively fulfilling all righteousness. And then He died on the cross for our condemnation, fulfilling the requirement of the law that sinners be condemned. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. You can take it that way, that Jesus fulfills the law for us. Or you can take it that by the Spirit, we fulfill the law in union with Jesus Christ. And so some people see this phrase pointing forward to our sanctification. And if you see it this way, you see the righteous requirement of the law indicating, not necessarily what I just indicated, that, that the law demands perfection, or else you, you are executed, that... There's condemnation. But the righteous requirement of the law could refer to the fact that the entire law can be summed up in one word. Law. Right? What, is, what is the if you were to boil down the requirement of the law with one thing, it is is what? It's to love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Paul. We'll say as much if you flip over to Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he goes on, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love the, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul might be referring to the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law by referring to the fact that we were, we were saved. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be an offering for our sins in order that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, that we might walk in love. Those of us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that we might walk in love and fulfill the law. Now, as I, as I consider these two options here, what did Paul mean? Is, is he pointing backwards to our justification that Jesus fulfills the law for us? Or is this pointing forward to our, our sanctification that by the Spirit we fulfill the law in union with Jesus and we actually walk in love? I find myself sort of torn between these. These are two really good options, aren't they? 
It's kind of a win-win choice of interpretation. And, and I really think here, after just really wrestling with this this week, I think that Paul needs all the above. I think that in Christ, all is fulfilled, even to the point of God's Spirit being poured out on us and empowering us to actually fulfill the Spirit of the law, which is love. Christ fulfills it all so that we are justified and He is helping us to fulfill it and walk in love. It's a, it's a win-win interpretation. I think it's a both-and. Paul says, We walk not according to the flesh now, but according to the Spirit. And I think it's going to become clear in the next few verses here what it looks like to walk in the Spirit and what it does not look like to walk in the Spirit. The normal Christian life has the foundation of no condemnation. In order that we might walk by the Spirit in transformation, sanctification. For it is the work of Christ that then paves the way for the work of the Spirit in your life. So we're going to have to return to that thought here next week as we dive into the rest of these verses. But I, I don't want to let you go this morning without talking about a little bit of application. Let's have three quick points. First of all, you've got to get in Christ. I don't know if you're like that guy who I was talking about at the beginning that received the dreaded news from his cardiologist that he needed a new heart and concluded that instead of coming in for the surgery, that he was going to deal with it with his own exercise regimen on his own. Maybe you're like that. Or maybe you're like that, that person who needs a joint replacement, replacement to be able to walk, but you're determined to keep on hobbling along at your own pace. Now, I'm not advocating elective surgeries here this morning as a point of, of uh, application, you understand. But what I am suggesting to you is this. Everything we've been talking about this morning hinges upon you being in Christ. That is, united with Him. So, you, you don't just need to work things out. You don't just need to limber things up. You need a new heart. You need God to do for you what you could never do for yourself due to the weakness of your own flesh. You need to get in Christ. Well, how do you get in Christ? Imagine someone asking me. I hope there's someone within the sound of my voice asking that question. How do I get in Christ? How do I get access to no condemnation? How do I get the Spirit of God to be poured out into my life to set me free from the power of sin? I want is there anyone hungry within the sound of my voice for that? Well, it starts by realizing that you need the drastic procedure to be done. How much you ever had to convince a loved one that they need to go ahead and get that joint replaced? They need to go ahead and get that heart procedure done. And they didn't want to do it, but you pointed out to them and say, look, this is impacting your life. You need to go in and go ahead and get this done. Well, let me fulfill that role in your life here this morning and say, look, there is a crippling disease in your life of sin and you need to go ahead and have the heart procedure done. You need a new heart that only God can provide. 
see, the tragic thing is that people are in desperate need and they don't even realize it. It's like when you've been in your house all day and you don't realize that the garbage has begun to stink. It kind of sneaks up on you. Or it rots overnight and you wake up and you don't even notice it because you've been smelling it all night. And suddenly, maybe someone comes in from out in the fresh air and they've been breathing the nice, clean, fresh air outside and they walk into the house and they're like, oh, that's some garbage. And you've, been, you've been sniffing garbage and you didn't even know it. you are separated from God, you need to get in Christ. And it starts by realizing that, that you are smelling your own garbage and you need to repent of it. You need to repent of your sins. And then, at the same time, the, the Spirit of God awakens in you faith. The Spirit of God is stirring in you. He will point out the garbage in your life, and at the same time, He will awaken in you a faith that says, Here's the answer, Christ. And you will place your faith and your trust in Him. Place your faith and your trust in the, the, the hope of the gospel that teaches that Christ became what you are. That is a curse. He became cursed for you, He became condemned. For you, so that you might become what Christ is a beloved son or daughter of God with no condemnation and a new banner over your life. You've got to get in Christ, my friend. And that's not anything that you do, it's something that can only be received by faith. Secondly, I want you to be encouraged by the evidence of the Spirit of God in your life. If you are in Christ and you can look at your life and see the, the power of the Spirit setting you free from sin and death, I'm not talking about perfectly, but that there is something new going on in your life where God is doing something, then you can be encouraged by that, that that is the evidence of verse 1, that there is no condemnation. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, by the way, just turned 70. There is an, there's an evil witch at loose in the world of Narnia who makes it always winter but never Christmas. But then Aslan, the, the Christ figure in the story, comes and at long last the winter begins to thaw and the witch's power is broken and her doom is sure. I would say that for those over whom God has declared no condemnation, and you can see the evidence of this declaration in your life through the Spirit of God, though there is still a bitter struggle going on with that indwelling sin, we can in fact look at our lives and see that, that the fall has begun. And that the evil one's doom is sure. And we've been set free. Although you still await a final freedom from your mortal body, you have already tasted the first fruits of that freedom, and it is good. Mm. And I think that can give us all hope and encouragement this morning. If you see this power at work within you, 
If this is true about you, the evidence is there, then surely the proclamation of no condemnation is there. Praise God. Thirdly, we're going to walk according to the Spirit. I already said that everything that Paul has been saying here is not yet prescription. Right? He's given no commands, and he's still only describing the normal Christian life. But I think you'll allow me to draw a natural inference from what Paul is saying here. We are to, to walk according to the Spirit. Those of us who have been set free from sin and death, we are not to go on living according to the flesh. We are not to go on living according to that power. We are to live in the freedom of the children of God, and we are to walk according to this power that is within us, at work mightily within us. We are to walk according to the freedom of the Spirit. It is the normal Christian life. And you should give yourself fully to this. And it is to this that we will return next week and unpack that idea even further.